If there's even a 5% chance that I have to look my great-great-grandchildren in the eyes and account for the things that I did and believed and professed, it really does change the way that I and I think a lot of people are thinking about the lives that we're living right now. Hi, I'm Taylor Owen, and this is Big Tech. If you're a big podcast listener, there's a good chance you've seen the name David Sinclair pop up on your feed recently. Over the past couple of years, he's kind of been everywhere, on Joe Rogan and Smartless and Armchair Expert. And if he wasn't one of Harvard's most prominent scientists, you probably wouldn't believe a word he says. Because David Sinclair says he's close to figuring out not just how to slow down aging, but to actually reverse it. And that within our lifetimes, humans will regularly live well beyond 100 years. In fact, we may not have to die of natural causes at all. As crazy as that sounds, there's a growing consensus in the scientific community that this might actually be possible. But even though significantly longer lifespans are looking increasingly likely, no one's really talking about how to prepare for that world. And the consequences here are potentially endless. How will our planet cope with a larger, older population? What does a lifetime Supreme Court nomination look like when a judge can live till they're 150? And how does our understanding of life itself change when death is taken off the table? These are the kinds of questions that Matthew Laplante has been grappling with for a couple of years now. Matthew's a longtime journalist who works closely with David Sinclair. They co-wrote a book called Lifespan together, and they co-host a podcast of the same name. So I wanted to hash out some of this with him, because it really seems like it's only a matter of time before we start living well into our hundreds. And we need to start thinking about how to prepare for that world. Here's Matthew LaPaul. Just broadly first, I mean, you've done a lot of journalism in your career and through your various work and work on different topics. And I'm, I'm kind of curious what brought you to this topic. Um, a call from David Sinclair, but that, that's probably enough. <laughs> so back up a little bit because I, I sort yeah. of like happened into science journalism and science communication sort of accidentally. Um, it was not my intention ever to go into, I always thought I was bad at science, like really bad at science. Um, and then one day I got a call from someone who wanted to write a book and I was like, he wanted to write a book about epigenetics. And I was like, I don't know anything about epigenetics. And he goes, that's okay. I know about epigenetics. You know about writing. We'll make that work. And the book worked and it worked. So I'd written a book about epigenetics and then somebody read that and he was like, I want to write a book about uh, about lifespan, lengthening human lifespan. And I'm like, I don't know anything about that. And he goes, that's okay. I know something about that. You just write the book. So, and that was John Day, the cardiologist that I work with a lot. And then uh, David Sinclair had read both of those books and he was like, I want to write a book about the epigenetics of aging and voila, now we're besties. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, so you, so you did that book, or but this, this was sort of more than that, it seems like. Like, you're pretty invested in this topic, and it feels like this is something, like, you care pretty passionately about and sort of believe is something we need to know more about as a society. So I, I guess just why do you think this is so important? So I, I think we need to know about this because, to me, 
Um, and, and by the way, like I don't drink the Kool-Aid. I don't take any of the supplements. Um, I exercise and I eat well, but like I'm, yeah. I'm, I don't expect to live to 120 or 150. I don't care. Um, so for me, it's just, just primarily based on the science. I see yeah. the way that the science is moving and I see the implications and I see mm. us completely and totally not ready for what's going to happen if a whole bunch of people start living a whole lot longer. Yeah. So like, to put my cards on the table, like I'm with you. I, I'm fascinated by the science. I think partly because of listening and reading your work. I, I think this is fascinating, but I, I think you're right that we're not in any meaningful way thinking about the consequences of this stuff um, and, and, and how to like prepare and govern those consequences, frankly. Um, I don't want to get to that, but like, first, can you just set out like in some of this work you hear it talked about is like extending life to 150 years old, right? Like David Sinclair mm -hmm. says that. But I, I saw a TED talk of his recently, and he's talking way more, may, much bigger than that, right? Like he's even starting to say like, we could reverse aging entirely and we could become immortal. And so can you talk a little about the scope of how people are talking about this potential? I think that even a decade ago, if you had said that we are going to have incredibly common 100-year lifespans and and health spans, right? The amount of time that you live without significant disease in your life. If you had said that, you would have been a pariah in most academic circles, even 10, 10 years, years ago. ago. Yeah. Okay. Uh, fast forward to today, 2022. Um, nobody's going to kick you out of Harvard for saying that kind of thing. <laughs> Nobody's going to kick you out of a of a conference. Nobody's going to look at you like you're an idiot because the science is progressing so, so very rapidly. And we are attacking this issue on so many different fronts such that like even if one of these fronts falls apart or if the Sinclair lab disappears, um, that's not going to stop the progress on on this movement. And so I think uh, as the accumulation of evidence stacks up, and as it starts pointing increasingly at the direction of, holy crap, this is going to happen, um, people are taking it more seriously. But now we're at that precipice, right? We're like, okay, okay, maybe people will reach 100 and they'll be healthy. But 120, oh my God. But No what, chance. Yeah. <laughs> no chance, no <laughs> way, right? But, you know, increasingly what I'm, I mean, I'm here and I've been in this space now for about five, six years. Um, what I'm even hearing in that relatively short amount of time is a shift in the tone and a shift in the acceptance of what the science is indicating may happen in the future. And, and part of that is just, you know, as the publications mount up, it gets harder and harder to deny that something's happening. But part of it also is this realization that, look, we could be wrong. I could be wrong. Um, all of the people who are working in this space, they could be wrong. They could all be failures, right? Maybe it's not, like, maybe there's a 95% chance. Let's say there was a 95% chance that they're all going to be wrong and only a 5% chance that they're going to be right. If they are right, we're screwed if we don't prepare. We're really, really screwed if we don't prepare. But some people are talking about something much more radical than just even 100 or 150 years old. Like some people are talking about immortality, right? In the scientific community. Some people in the scientific community, far more people who are out on the outskirts of the scientific community. Um, you know, what, uh, what Sinclair has said is there's no biological age that dictates that we have to age. Um, I am not a 
biologist, but I, that makes sense to me, right? That doesn't mean that tomorrow we're going to be immortal or for that matter that we're ever going to be truly immortal, right? Like, I mean, it's like Highlander. Eventually somebody's going to take your head off. But yeah, I, I mean, yes, there is, I, I think that is out there. I think that it is being increasingly talked about. I think the calmer heads in the space right now are saying, let's look at what happens. Because we don't have to extend human lifespans 100 years to make a fundamental shift in the way that we live our lives. We just have to extend it a few decades. And that alone is going to make a huge difference. My God, and that's already happened, right? As we've moved from our life expectancy being from the 60, 60 years old to 80 years old, right? Like that's changed society right. in some fundamental ways already. And more than that, health expectancies, right? Like, I mean, right, yeah. you know, like 30-year-old th people look, used to look like 30-year-old people <laughs> and 60-year-old people very rarely did. And it's right. <laughs> it's really not the case anymore, right? I mean, like we we like like sixty is the new thirty. Um, I've got a buddy who just took up pickleball. He was an, old, an editor at my newspaper, and he's an old guy, right? He was an old guy, and just by doing the things that we've always known that we can do, but like largely refused to do, um, which is like like sleep better, stress better, eat better, work out better, we can have a meaningful effect on our rate of aging. And this guy looks, I mean, my God, he's like running around like a 20-year-old. Right. I mean, I mean, you, you can't help but notice that David Sinclair has to look pretty young, too. <laughs> I mean, it, it really makes me mad. Some, it really makes me mad. I can only imagine. You can feel that in the podcast. That I had him up at my, my God, I'm going to say, I, I had him up at my place uh, a few months ago, and we went downstairs, and we went and hit the hot tub, and he takes off his shirt, and he looks like a 17-year-old boy. Just, <laughs> it's, it's disgusting. <laughs> So, like, that gets an interesting point here. Like, what we what do we actually mean when we talk about aging? And and this is something I think I've learned a lot from from your work is that I think I always just thought that aging was a degrading, the body degrading over time and was kind of predictable in a certain sense. But how do you how do you define aging, and how have you has that changed how you've understood it? So, there's a biological way to define aging, and there's also sort of like a conceptual way to define to define aging. And the first thing we need to do is segment out these ideas of age and aging, right? For all of human history, really up until this point, age, which is a measure of the number of times you've been around the sun, uh, was roughly correlated to aging, um, you know, just by virtue of the fact that we weren't addressing it. We didn't need to address it. I mean, when, when human lifespans are, you know, 40 and 50 years old on average, right, and only occasionally does somebody, like, you know, break the mold, you don't really need to think about these things. Um, but what aging is is a function of complex biological processes. And, and you know, that's part and partial to an uh, ancient set of codes in our DNA, um, and we can see that, right? You can see that in our wrinkles around our eyes and the graying of our hair. And, and, um, you know, when I get off up off the ground and I like groan, right, that's, that's aging as opposed to age. And so now we're starting to decouple these two things. Um, but then there's this, this other deeper biological question, which is like, what is causing aging? And that's that's still largely up for debate, although increasingly, I think that, you know, the science is coalescing around this idea that there is an epigenetic root, right? An accumulation of methyls on our DNA that is interfering with the way that our cells read our genetic code. 
Can you can you define what you mean by epigenetic there? Okay, so so and and here's where we really need the scientists involved. But okay, so we have a genome, right? You have a genome, I have a genome. It is uh pretty much immutable, right? Like the genes that you inherited, the thing that you learned about your genes in middle school is still pretty much true, right? Which is to say, you got some from one parent, you got some from another parent, you mix those suckers up, X's and Y's and all that stuff, and you've got a code, and that code will be with you from birth until death. And it's not going to change in any meaningful way. And then Beyond that, we have an epigenome, which is an accumulation of chemicals, uh, most notably methyls, methyl markers, on our genetic code. And these change the expression of our genes, right? So if, you know, the, the oftentimes the analogy uses is a, a piano, right? Like you, you have all of these keys and the keys are fixed and they're, they are what they are, but you can play them in all different combinations and you can play them hard or you can play them soft or you can play them fast or you can play them slow. And, and that's what our epigenome does is it, is it modulates the way that our cellular machinery reads our genetic code and decides what to do with it. And that's what can change over time or potentially go wrong, right? And how it interprets Right, correct. It does change over time. We know that it changes over time. And we know that, uh, you know, like almost very commonsensically, um, you know, you do bad stuff to your body. The epigenetic consequences of that is often bad. So you smoke, there's an epigenetic consequence. You eat bad food, there's an epigenetic consequence. You don't exercise, you stress, you don't sleep. There are epigenetic consequences for these things. So, so you guys talk about this ability now to actually read your biological age or measure your biological age. So what's that process doing and, and how do we know that? Yeah, so Stephen Horvath from UCLA has had a lot of success on this, among other people. Um, and basically, it's taking if you take 350 of these markers, these epigenetic markers that are on our DNA, and you you read them out, you sequence them, you do an epigenetic sequence as opposed to a genetic sequence, um, you can use that as a proxy for your rate of aging. So somebody who has smoked and drank and do, done all of these things that is not maybe as conducive to a longer and healthier lifespan as somebody who lives in a, you know, quote unquote, healthier way, um, you can actually see that by looking at these markers. So what are the range of things we're talking about here um, that people are talking about is like interventions we can make on our lives um, or on our science or on our bodies that, that could extend our life? Yeah, so I think one of the things and one of the most important things is to recognize that um, there's a ton of stuff that we can do right now. And it's not that complicated. And it has been shown in study after study to improve health spans and lifespans, right? If you exercise for 15 minutes a day, you are very likely to have a longer and healthier lifespan than somebody who doesn't. And if you eat more plant-based foods, same thing, right? And if you get you more sleep, smoke. same thing. You, and you yeah, don't, yeah. for goodness sake, don't smoke. Um, <laughs> yeah. Don't do heroin. <laughs> you, <Right>. know? Um, <laughs> you know, so, and, and one of the things that really like endlessly frustrates me when I'm having conversations with people about this topic is they're like, you know, when will the pills be here? Or, you know, when will the cellular reprogramming be here? When will the aging vaccinations be here? And I don't personally believe that that stuff is that far off. But if you're not willing to do the things right now that you could be doing to live a longer and healthier life, I don't know. Like, I don't feel like you deserve that stuff, yeah. you know? 
but they are talking about those other things. Absolutely. To be clear, right? Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of what your book is about, right? Is like yeah. these much more sophisticated technological innovations ultimately here. Right, right. And so now we're talking about uh, supplements and medications. Um, there are several classes of supplements and medications that have been shown in model organisms to expand healthy lifespans. Uh, a lot of these do this just by mimicking the effects of fasting which is another thing that people could do right now if they really want to, if, they, if they're concerned about this. Um, you know, uh, you don't need to mimic fasting to engage in fasting. You can just do it, yeah. <laughs> you can just do it, but there are mm -hmm. there are pills that uh, appear to do this, or I should say chemicals, molecules that appear to do this in many different model organisms. Um, and so those are coming down the line right now. Uh, the thing that's happening in the Sinclair lab right now, which I've had a ringside seat to, just blows my mind, is epigenetic reprogramming. Taking the cells that have had an accumulation of epigenetic gunk on them, for lack of a better word, and sending them back down through a... Uh, through a reverse process to make them essentially young cells again. They're having success with mice in that. It's absolutely fantastic. And that's, you and know. What kinds of things could that do? Like what would that, that could reprogram a cell that was behaved, like a, a cancerous cell that was behaving improperly and then reverse that? Is that, that the kind right, of thing? Right, yeah. Well, and I mean, and, you know, which your question actually leads to another kind of line, which is addressing senes cellular senescence, right? So when cells get really old and they sort of have outlived their usefulness, they turn into these little zombie cells. They don't die. They stick around and they start secreting all these chemicals that are really bad for the other cells and they basically infect all the other cells and you have this little cellular zombie apocalypse. Um, and we're, you know, there's a, a whole nother front on this war, which is senolytic drugs and treatments which address these senescent cells basically go in sweep out the zombies and leave the healthy cells where they were it's amazing to hear <laughs> this stuff said out loud right that, like this is this is what's actually yeah. happening well, and this is all why i say like there's so much going on is all why i say like you know what i i don't need everybody to believe this i don't like i don't right like i need you to believe that there's a five percent chance that any one of these things is going to have a measurable effect on lifespans and health spans And the other dynamic you can't really escape sort of grasping on, or at least I can, to someone who's kind of pretty concerned about the technology sector and um, some of the motives and incentives behind it, frankly, are that like there's a lot of money flooding into this space. And a lot of it is come, is being framed in the kind of tech innovation framing, I would say, as opposed to like, let's make ourselves healthier. It's like, let's innovate out of our way of aging and let's scale a unicorn to solve aging and <laughs> right. like, why is the tech world so enamored with this do you think and is that real that they're really driving a lot of this research it is absolutely real that they're driving a lot of this research um the funding a lot of this research um i think the question you ask is kind of a philosophical one and it has to do i think a little bit with uh the lives that certain people are privileged to get to le lead in this world right now which is better than anything in human history, like better than anything human history ever invented, right? Like the monarchs of old didn't live anywhere near as well as our, and I'm going to uh, maybe coin a phrase here, our poor billionaires, right? Like the lower billionaire class lives a thousand times better in every way than the highest class a hundred years ago. 
And man, who wouldn't want that to continue? And that is such an interesting answer. I mean, there's no question. Like, if you lived in the Middle Ages, you probably didn't want to live longer. Yeah. You know, you like you, you got to a point. And also, like, look, we have been beneficiaries of an accumulation of evidence which says that if we make some small changes in our lives, we can have longer and healthier lives. We know that now. We've seen the evidence of it. Um, you know, we we all know what Paul Rudd looks like. And, you know, at some point people go like, oh, wait, I can have that instead of what used to be the case, which was the case by and large for everyone, which is you reach 80, 90, 100 and you look horrible. You don't make that look like a good experience. So maybe some people were like, well, I could have all that wisdom, but it didn't look like a party. Now it looks like a party. I was just chatting with a buddy of mine who was uh, he was hella skiing up in, in B.C. last week. Uh, with a guy who had just completed on that trip his one millionth vertical foot of heli skiing. He's 84 years old. 84 years oh old. This God. guy is jumping out of helicopters, keeping up with everybody else. I had an experience like this uh, um, a few years ago at a resort here in Utah um, where I was doing a story about skiing in Utah, and I, I wanted to find somebody who had been skiing at this resort for a very long time. So I went up to this lady. She looked like an old biddy. She had this helmet on and, like, uh, like this, like, white hair kind of coming wispy and curly out of, you know, the bottom of her helmet. And I was like, hey, um, is it okay if we ski with you a little bit today? And she looks at me. And she goes, if you can keep up, <laughs> you know, and she worked us. I mean, she was 70 something years old and she skis like a monster. And so we have this evidence now and not just in the skiing world, although that's often where my brain goes. But we have all this evidence now where 70 and 80 and 90 and 100 can look pretty darn good. And so if you can dream about that and if you can afford that and if you can afford to invest in things that will allow you to have early access to it, yeah, why wouldn't you? And that hits on another dynamic of this, or sociological dynamic that seems to be playing out here is that there does seem to be a certain demographic and audience that this message is resonating with. Like, yes, it's the tech world, but it's also like, frankly, a lot of people who are kind of look like us, <laughs> like <laughs> middle-aged men White who dudes? have like yeah. a, a pretty decent life and like love talking about it on podcasts now. I mean, what's <laughs> right. going on what's going on there? Like why is the Joe Rogan world all enamored with this discourse at the moment? Well, I think I mean going back to my answer a few minutes ago, I mean I think it says a lot about privilege, right? Like I live a great life, you know? Like I I'm and and you know, like I've said like I said at the beginning, like I'm not I'm not drinking the Kool-Aid. I'm watching this. I'm interested in it. I find it fascinating. Um, I don't personally feel the desire to extend my own life, you know, in that way. But a, a lot of people who have a life that's very similar to mine, there's good reason for that. It is a good life. And if, you know, if you're already advantaged in sort of every way, why wouldn't you? Mm. Yeah. I mean, something the way this stuff gets talked about in that world, too, is is kind of interesting, I think, and goes beyond just this particular topic. And there's, there almost seems to be kind of a a desire for heterodox thinking or a desire to kind of challenge conventional whatever, institutions or, or science, frankly. And I guess as, as someone who's trying to communicate this stuff, how do you navigate that kind of, the, the desire of people to just challenge orthodoxy, but your desire to also communicate rigorous science? Like, is there a <laughs> <Right>. tension there? <laughs> 
<laughs> that no, oh my God, there is a tension there because um, as I told you earlier, right, 10 years ago, this was not the orthodoxy, right? I mean, this was, this would have made you a pariah in scientific circles. Um, I had a, I had a conversation with a senator a few years ago and I told him, you know, the stuff that I was working on, this book that I was working on. And he just sort of like laughed. He's like, like you're wasting your time. You know, that's just, you know, that's such a joke. And, you know, I've seen that guy in interviews now talking about like getting ready for this stuff and, and how exciting it is. And, and so, yeah, so part of it is that the people who jump on board things that sound a little crazy are often the people who jump on board other things that sound a little crazy and might even actually be a little crazy. Um, and that's the real challenge when you're working um, on the edge of things, I think, is that the the company you keep is either visionary or crazy, um, and the line between visionary and crazy is pretty narrow sometimes. It is, and like I think there's some signals of authority that, we still broadly trust, like David Sinclair is a very respected scientist at a very respected institution, right? So to me as a layperson walking into that discourse, he has a signal of authority that I personally find valid, right? So I, I take what he says seriously. Um, but that's not always the case in this discourse, right? Like there's a lot of people more on the fringes and this has led to all sorts of challenges recently around questioning vaccines and questioning public health policy and like we're the i don't know quite what i'm getting at there but i i think this is all kind of there's something going on here where we're talking about science in a new way that's that's both exciting um but also is lacking some of these signals sometimes yeah well i so i i'm gonna equate this a little bit to what's happening in the world of journalism right now um you know we're, we're talking right now in a podcast Ten years ago, you say the word podcast, people are like, "Huh, what?" And twenty years ago, you say the word podcast and like nothing, right? Like, like tumbleweeds. What's happening right now is there's a fundamental shift in the way that we are delivering the news, and not just in medium, but in terms of like who are the people who are the purveyors of the initial sources of information, right? At one time, I didn't get to find out about something until it was in my morning newspaper the next day. And then, you know, television and radio come along, and then the internet comes along, and social media comes along, and we're having this big societal conflict right now about, like, oh, my God, like, misinformation spreads rampantly on social media. And it is true. It does. Misinformation also spread rampantly in traditional sources of media, but in different ways and in ways that we grew accustomed to and, and developed you know, the signals again to like of reliability and we became right, norms exactly. on how to decipher that world. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so um, it's going to be a while before all that shakes out and we've developed the societal norms and, and the, the tools that we need to say, OK, when information comes in this way, how do I vet that? How do I think about that? Who do I trust? And I think the same thing is happening in science right now, especially when it comes to machine learning, AI, right? There's just like this explosion in things that we couldn't even think about doing before. I heard somebody say once, you know, uh, CRISPR, Cas9, has made it so that what would have been a career of research just a few decades ago is now an undergraduate project for a semester. So we're having this explosion right now. And because of that, there's a lot of tumult, right? There's a lot of confusion about, well, who can I trust? What can I trust? Who can I listen to? Who's going to give me this information? And oftentimes we're making bad decisions. 
or what I would say are bad decisions. We're listening to the wrongful voices because it's going to take a while for this to shake out. Yeah. And at the same time, it's happening so fast that we may not have, in some cases, we don't necessarily have the time for it to shake out effectively, right? We got to get it right fast. And, and oh, yeah. I, w- I want to talk about how, what are some of the mechanisms we should put in place to govern this stuff effectively, frankly, and put some of those safeguards in. But, but first, just to get a sense of like, how some of this could evolve and what some of the bigger social and economic implications might be of this science, right? Like if we do age as a society in a, in a radically different way, I just wanted to touch on a few of the issues that I think come up from your work. I mean, one is just the, the environmental implications here. I mean, we've debated this often around aging throughout history. <laughs> what happens if less people die and more people are born and like what that's going to mean for the planet? And are, are people starting to think that through of what it means if everybody just lives for three times longer? Not nearly enough. Um, I will say that the, the math is not nearly so terrifying to me as I initially thought um, because our rate of growth was plateauing anyway. Um, as a global society uh, has been looking like it's going to reach, you know, like 10 billion and sort of 10, 11 billion is sort of like the global plateau. Um, And so, you know, shifting aging in what I think is going to happen, which is not like these, like we're talking about tens and twenties of years and not hundreds of years, um, at least in the, in the immediate future. Um, isn't going to put a greater strain on our planet than the strain that's already there. Now, that said, a lot of scientists say that we're well past carrying capacity for this planet anyway. Um, there is some there is some disagreement on that, and I think it's a legitimate disagreement because carrying capacity is often defined by consumption. And this is really, I mean, like, you could put 100 billion people on this planet if our consumption patterns were different, if our energy consumption patterns were different, right? Um you can't put a hundred billion people and all of their associated McMansions on this planet. You can't do it. Um, and so, yeah, that's absolutely something that we have to be talking about, at least in the long term, um, is if there are more people on this planet, how do we account for that in terms of providing for their needs and also in terms of making sure that we don't just brutalize the planet even faster than we already are, which is a pretty darn good clip. Uh, absolutely. And, and is one that is um, perpetuated in vastly unequal ways, right? We consume way more than people in other parts of the world. Um, and it, is that an aspect of this that's being talked about too? That like the inequality of aging that like... Yeah. Well, you know, uh, it's funny because if there is one thing that um, like the Lifespan book got criticized on harder than anything else and harder than anything that I think that I had expected was... You know, if you just mention climate change, people are like, oh, man, you got political. You know, it was fine when you were talking about the science, but then you got political. Well, you got political by talking about something that is a scientific truth, which or as close to a scientific truth as exists, which is that our planet is warming at a far greater pace than climate variability, natural pro- climate variability would suggest it should. And that is thanks to human caused drivers of that change. But that's, you know, people freak out about that. Yeah, don't don't talk about that. You're making me feel bad. Um, but actually that that thing, you're making me feel bad, I think I you know, and maybe I'm Pollyannish, but um I think that's our saving grace in a little bit because what we don't have right now is accountability for the way that we live because we die. Because we go away, we don't have to look in most cases our grandchildren in the eye when they're adults and they have to deal with the problems that we have given to them. Um, great-grandparents are going to be looking their great-grandchildren, their adult great-grandchildren in the eye 
in the century. Like it's already happening. It's going to be happening more and more. Right. So there's not just like uh, moral accountability, but um, there can be legal accountability now, too. Right. Like, I mean, like the ultimate statute of limitations in every legal system in the world is the human lifespan. (laughs) Right. Right? (laughs) Yeah. You can't prosecute someone if they're already dead. Is the inverse also true, though, that like generations progress and allow old ideas, like (laughs) lifespan also allows bad ideas to fade away. And I do wonder if like, if if some of these people who are around during slavery were still alive, they might still be fighting for slavery and we might not be progressing beyond it. That's a that's a really good point. And, you know, we have institutions that would cause that to happen as well. This is also something we're not, you know, we're about to put a new Supreme Court justice on our Supreme Court in the United States for another lifetime appointment. The the difference between a lifetime appointment for a jurist who was in their 40s or 50s and 60s when they were appointed and lived to 70 or 80 and someone who's in their 40s, 50s or 60s when they're appointed and lives to 110 is a lot different, right? It's, it's a big, big difference. Um, we've got people in our Senate who've been sitting in Congress for four and five decades. We've got a dictator in Russia who has been in charge for just about a quarter century now. Um, And the power that he has accumulated over that time has allowed him to uh, wage war unchecked, right? In a way that, I mean, like, like NATO won't stand up to because we're terrified. Rightfully so, we're terrified. Um, also, he may very well, I think Elon Musk said this a couple of days ago, he may ve- very well actually be the richest man on the planet because power begets power and power over long periods of time, even two decades of power, you can accumulate a lot of power. Imagine Vladimir Putin on the throne in Russia for 50 years, for 60 years. I mean, in some ways, that's getting to a, an issue we all face, which is retirement and when we sort of how our entire both our institutions, but also our economy kind of pushes us from one phase of life to another and it kind of moves us out of productivity and into something else, into leisure. Or do, do you think that changes too with time? Like, do we start just being more productive for longer and longer and our whole economic model shifting because of that? Well, we have to. Um, you know, I mean, all, like even with the uh, incremental life and health ban uh, increases that we've had over the last 50 and 60 years, we've had to fundamentally have very difficult conversations about what social security means in this country, right? And countries across the world are having to have this conversation about what does it mean to have a social safety net, right? Um, You know, in in the United States, you can tap into social security at 62, I think. I'm a little ways away from that, so I'm not really focused on that number. Um, Also, I don't believe it's still going to be there insolvent when I get to it. So, (laughs) um, but, right, like, 62 is a young person. In my mind, in in my view of what the future looks like in 10 and 15 and 30 years, 62 is a a really young person. We want somebody retiring for another 62 years? That that doesn't work. It fundamentally doesn't work. Um, You know, and and this is just me, my personal view on this, but um, you know, my, my parents recently, fairly recently retired and, and I love them to death, but man, they don't make it look fun. You know, they kind of like have their patterns now and their friends and their church and the things that they do. And, uh, 
I just don't see that sort of like that that vibrance, the child, the day to day challenge that they used to face, the problems they'd come home with, the things that they would talk about. And so, on the one hand, like, wow, this is really going to suck for people to be told you could retire at sixty five, and now we're going to tell them no, you can't retire until God knows when. Um, but on the other hand. Oh man, I want to be productive for those years. I want to be contributing in those ways, and so I think I think there's going to be a lot of shakeup. There's going to be have to be a lot of conversations too about who deserves to take a break, right? Like sixty-two years old at a desk is not the same thing as sixty-two years old in a coal mine. Well, and I mean, doing work that gives life meaning is different than doing work that allows you to survive. And those have always been fundamentally different things and um, just changes how we think about how long we want to be doing it for. We have a moral responsibility, I think. And uh, I mean, just a social responsibility to keep from, you know, really hardcore revolution from happening to say like, we need to be working toward a world in which people are permitted to do work that makes their life feel meaningful, not just helps them put bread on the table. Like, I think those are like all big societal and economic changes that our institutions and our governments and are going to have to adapt to. But I, I was struck from from the book and particularly the last episode of your podcast of just how many actually sharp policy issues there are right now that aren't just about like how we adapt to this inevitability, but how we ensure that some potentially really scary negative things don't happen when we're building that inevitability. Like that's a different thing. And and I spent a lot of time working on tech governance and regulating tech companies and platforms and how we do that and how we're struggling with how we do that, frankly, right now. But I'm wondering how you think about that from like like a regulation standpoint. Like what are the big things that governments should be looking at this sector and saying like, we've got to slow some things down or we have to add some friction to this system or we have to protect some rights that citizens have as these technologies are built and developed. Yeah, well, I, I to take it sort of from the top down, I think we need to start talking about a right to a health span. Um, because that doesn't exist in any codified law that I know of right now. And if this is purely driven by capitalism, uh, what we have is a world where people who are already very privileged and rich will be able to take advantage of these things earlier and afford them longer. And that, uh, and and if you just think about like what already happens, like right now, the difference between rich and poor in the United States uh, is 20 years of lifespan. And the health span difference is even greater than that. And you think about that, what that buys you, what's lifespan and health span buys you in terms of investments and earning and, and cost, right? It costs a lot of money to be sick. And it prevents income accumulation when you were sick, when you were older. So if if that is a privilege that we give some people and not to other people, we're in a world of hurt in terms of these already gaping divides and increasingly gaping divides between haves and have-nots. And so from sort of a really big macro level, we really do need to start talking about, like, is there a fundamental human right to live longer and healthier? 
I mean, look, I, I want to go into the more specifics, but let's pause on that one for a second because you're in the United States and you don't even have publicly funded health care. Like we don't even have a right in the United States to get health care, let alone right. all these like sophisticated technologies to extend one's life. And like, do you think that po- conversation is even possible at the moment? Um, yeah, and I, I, I think it's possible in the near future because I think what's going to happen is that the first out of the gate on this is going to be China. I think China, you know, is going to recognize that it has a really unique ability to make rapid policy changes that make these things possible, that address public health in general and aging specifically. Um, the can do that particularly through food access, right? Like one of the things that we could all do like much better, like before we even talk about like, you know, what happens when you get sick, we can prevent people from getting sick largely by just making sure they have access to clean water and healthy food. And that's really hard to do in a nation with lots and lots of freedoms. It's a lot easier to do in a nation like China um, because it can enforce public nutrition policies. It can regulate the food supply. It can increase prices of unhealthy foods and decrease prices of healthy foods. And so I think with it, like I think what we're going to see in the next decade is a stricter enforcement of the Healthy China Plan, um, which is the the sort of the the legal framework governing how. China encourages its citizenship to get and stay healthy. And it's going to do this not because it's the right thing to do, although it is the right thing to do, but because it's the largest provider of centralized health care in the world. And it's also the fastest growing. And it has a vested interest in reducing the single greatest driver of sickness, which is aging. And so where and then where China goes, the rest of the world is going to have to follow fairly quickly. Right. To, to keep up, to keep up economically, uh, to keep up socially. Um, and I know there's going to be different approaches, uh, but I don't see this as sort of like, um, I see this as a, a time where a lot of things that were, seemed like intractable problems um, get shaken up to so much that all of a sudden we are having to have conversations in in different ways, about the same issues, but in different ways. And those issues including things like socialized versus privatized medicine. Right. Another big one that really struck me from the way you talked about it on the podcast is the the issue of data privacy. And like, we know that companies in the digital economy are largely built on a model of commodifying data. Like that's what drives right. the digital economy right. at the moment. And, and then we have these same companies and investors developing technologies that are going to collect a whole new layer of specificity of data about our lives and our genetic codes. And is that something you're concerned about and that we should try and get a handle on from a policy standpoint? Yeah, absolutely. One of the uh, really smart people in the space is Nathan Price from the Institute for Systems Biology and uh, Thorn Health. He's a, he's a computational biologist who is thinking a lot about these issues right now and about like in particular, like how do we take advantage of big data and everything that it can give us? Big data is the highway to early intervention of diseases, to to cutting off diseases before they uh, grow and proliferate and spread across systems in the human body. But we can only do that with big, huge shared sets of data. And, you know, the idea of, uh, you know, data that is de-identified has, you know, been proven to be faulty at best and sort of silly at worst, because it actually turns out because our data is so unique to us and the 
vast amounts of data that we need to make these sorts of leaps and advancements um, is so huge, it's really easy to track that data back to people. So, that, you know, like the, the idea of privacy in this new world is going to have to shift substantially as well. And then who do you trust with that data? Do you trust the government? Do you trust a private company? I, I don't know. I, I don't know. But these are conversations that m- most of the world is not having right now. Well, and, and the way we are having it is in is really just about technologies that are like 10 years. I mean, we're still struggling with what Facebook does with our data, let alone right. what someone does with data about our entire genome and the way our body functions. And as you say, like right. terabytes of data collected about our our body. I mean, that that's as personal as it gets, frankly. And Oh, yeah. I mean, if you think about this data, what we can do with this data right now, like health tracking data, right? You take, uh, you know, measures of digital health, like, you know, like your Fitbit watch or, you know, your bio trackers, whatever you're wearing, right? And those are incredibly valuable uh, when incorporated with other big data, like the data clouds that we produce about our own health. You put these things together and... What can you do? Well, like you want to know who's cheating on their spouses? You know, their Fitbit's going to tell you their GPS enabled watch that's tracking their steps and their heart rate and everything else is going to tell you who they're bonking. We're really at the cusp of a world in which, you know, to a large degree, the things that we used to call privacy and used to, I mean, like think almost uh, empirically as private matters are going to be available. Uh, to larger and larger numbers of people and certainly to the systems that control our health and, and our health care. Yeah, and there's often a tendency to talk about regulation as hindering innovation. But it seems to me that if if I was a scientist in this space and I was talking about things like David Sinclair does around sort of constant monitoring of one's body and being able to remotely tell you when you're sick or about to have a heart attack or whatever it might be, if that's seen as a positive innovation, you better hope there's a regulatory framework because the only way people are going to adopt that is is if there's some protection or some notion of privacy that that isn't going to be abused, right? These So sometimes regulation can maybe enable innovation in this space. So I, I would think so. I, I mean... Yes, and that's the way I I think that I've thought about it mostly also. But, um, you know, we have a very long history now of giving up privacy in exchange for a little bit of convenience, right? Like, I mean, like my uh, iPhone, man, collects more information on my daily movement and and activities and, and communications, you know, than anything I could have imagined 20 years ago. Um and I consent to that, right? Largely because it is convenient for me to be able to, you know, find my daughter's soccer game, um, you know, without having to pull out a, you know, one of those. You remember those maps that we used to fold out and we could never <laughs> yeah. refold them? <laughs> the old world. The old world. Yeah, the, the old world. In the old world. I remember I used to deliver pizzas in that world. And and I had a fold-out map in my car. Half the time, it was like laid out across the dashboard. And that was how I found my way from point A to point B. In exchange for not having to do that, right, we've consented to give up a lot of our privacy. That's just a like, final question, I guess. I mean, I, I can't be help but being struck through all of 
reading through your work and and listening to your podcast about how how much of how we've thought about life in past has been about this arc of being young and living a certain life and thinking about the world a certain way and then getting older and getting wiser and seeing people die and living through that. And I, I wonder, do you like just sort of ontologically or philosophically think we're like starting to think about life differently? And are, are you having learned more about this now? I think that we cannot help but think about the trajectory of life in a different way when we are introduced to the idea of decoupling age and aging. Um, and I think the other thing that is going to have a really big impact in that is, you know, you mentioned getting older and having wisdom. And we do, we, we get that, we value that for a short amount of time. And then, you know, dementia steals it away from a great many of us. And it's, it's actually terrifying, this idea, right? Um, so I think, you know, as we have successes in that area of human health as well. Um, and I think there's, I mean, this whole nother podcast, but um, I think there's good reason to be confident despite all of the failures for the last, you know, 30, 40 years in the front against Alzheimer's disease. I think there's good reason to be very positive and optimistic in the future. As we start thinking about that trajectory in a different way, um, you can't help but start to think about your place in the world in a different way. I, and again, like, even though like I, I'm not, you know, on team, take all the supplements and do all the things and, you know, get a blood boy and all of these things that, you know, um, even though I'm not doing these things, like I think often about meeting generations upon generations that are beyond the people who are on this planet right now. And yeah. will be anytime soon. Yeah. Meeting your grand, great, great grandchildren. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's a kind of remarkable thought, isn't it? To, yeah. Right. It, it really yeah. is. And and being able to you know to being able to play ball with your great great grandkids. Mm. Um, but also this this sort of idea of like what what kind of life do I need to be living right now? If that is true, and I go back to this five percent thing that we talked about earlier in the podcast, right? If it's even if there's even a five percent chance that I have to look my great great grandchildren in the eyes and account for the things that I did and believed and professed and kept a record on on Twitter and Facebook and everything else, right? They'll be able to look it up and they'll be like, "Great granddaddy, you did this." I'm going to have to account for that. It really does change the way that I and I think a lot of people are thinking about the lives that we're living right now and whether or not, you know, if you if you only have to account for that until you get dementia and die, that's one thing. But um, if you have to account for that for future generations, um, then you have to account for that for yourself, too. And um, and I I I do think that that's a good thing. It's been a good thing for me. That was my conversation with Matthew LaPlante. As always, you can reach me at taylor at bigtechpodcast.com. Big Tech is presented by the Center for International Governance Innovation in association with Antica Productions. The show is produced by Trevor Huntberger, Debbie Pacheco, and Mitchell Stewart, with associate producer Abi Raheja. Please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We release new episodes on Thursdays every week.